Hello and welcome to College Admissions with Mark and Anna. Each week we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how stressful this process can be, so each episode we try to make it easier to navigate. Now, here are your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the College Admissions Podcast with Mark and Anna. This is your host, Anna Wren and... Mark Hofer. Hi, Mark. How's it going? I'm good. How are you on this first day of spring? I know it's first day of spring. It's, it's, it's <laughs> lovely. It's lovely. But I'm actually really excited because our seniors are getting their admissions letters and offers, you know, this month into next. We're excited to talk about the upcoming financial aid cycle for the families that have college on their mind, which, you know, happens often during this time of year. And I'm really excited to welcome Claire Law. Claire Law is an independent educational consultant, professional member of IECA, Certified Educational Planner. She helps parents figure out the best educational avenues for their teen children. Claire Law worked in college admissions for 10 years and for a Sally Mae lender for a short while. Claire went into private practice about 20 years ago and works with all types of students, high performing, middle of the road, bottom of the class, may have ADHD, learning disabilities, spectrum students, as well as high performing students. She works in person and virtually with families of throughout the U.S. and even abroad. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. That's such a nice introduction. How is everybody? Everybody's doing well on this first day of spring? Yes, yes. Excited to talk about money today, right? Who doesn't love to talk about money, right? But something I do want to cover is like, we're going to be throwing out some acronyms and special words. So I figure we'll do like a really quick overview for families that are new and just have juniors or sophomores right now, which is the two applications that we will be talking about, which is the FAFSA and CSS profile. Do you mind giving families that are new to this an overview? on the financial aid process? Sure, sure, sure. It's a big topic and it's overwhelming, but in a nutshell, the FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. And it's the first avenue, the first source of funding that colleges will give families. It comes from the federal government. It comes from the state. It's no skin off their nose. If a family qualifies for federal aid, they're more than happy to package all the federal aid that a student qualifies for if the, if the student files FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid, which is available at studentaid.gov. Now, there is another form, which is called the CSS profile, and I don't think we'll have a chance to talk much about that. Suffice to say that it is a parent document. The FAFSA can be completed by a student, but the CSS profile is a parent document that is issued by the College Board and used by many elite private colleges. And it uses a different calculation for estimating a family's ability to pay. So the you know, the philosophy is families are supposed to pay to the best of their ability, but to the best of their ability is dependent on the formulas. The FAFSA uses certain formulas. The CSS file uses the FAFSA formulas plus additional formulas, plus institutional formulas and whatever the college wants to do with their money. 
when it comes time for the college to disperse its own money, the examination of the family's income and assets is much more detailed and invasive, actually. So, Claire, you you mentioned that the FAFSA was free and that the CSS profile is owned by the college board. Is there a fee for the CSS profile? Yes, yes. The, the CSS profile costs $25 for the first application and then $16 for each additional college that you want to send your CSS profile to. Okay. So there is a cost. And to get into the CSS profile, students, parents use their students' login, which they use for the SAT. Just a minor point. Don't create another account. Whereas to get onto FAFSA, both parent and students apply for a personal FSA ID, which is a personal login and secure password. Very good. So those so are the logistics. Was, if if there was one thing, a specific difference between the two collecting information systems, what's the biggest difference between CSS profile that they basically take in information that FAFSA doesn't take in? Yeah. Well it's the <clears throat> the equity in the home is a big one, but essentially FAFSA is very good at determining who is poor and the CSS profile is very efficient at figuring out who is rich. And I say <laughs> <That's> that, <awesome. laughs> I say that because the federal government only has that Pell Grant to give out. Yeah, there may be some vet veterans benefits or whatever, but really it's the Pell Grant. If a student is Pell Grant eligible, they're likely on free and reduced lunch. They likely live <clears throat> at or just above the poverty line. And so that is free money, which with under the Biden administration, it's gone up to about 6,800, something like that, just shy of $7,000. And so once the federal government has figured out who is eligible for that Pell Grant, they're done, you know, they can go on scot-free. Everything else is this, the usual loans. And yes, there is a portion of the undergraduate loan that can be subsidized, again, for students who demonstrate need. And that means the interest on that loan is paid by the federal government while the student is in school. But that's a minimal amount. If you're talking, it's not enough to pay for college, may, may be enough to pay for community college. But once the federal, the FAFSA has established what is the family's financial situation, they're done. Whereas with the CSS profile, both parents, whether they're separated, divorced, or never married, they will get a CSS profile. So both parents will file the CSS profile. And the financial aid administrators are very good at keeping the information from the other, one information from one parent from the other. And then the colleges, before they give out their own institutional funding, they want to know what type of home do you live in? What is the market value of your home? And so, and they do use Zillow and Ranzelier, whatever, not or whatever, they use ways to find out what would your house be worth. And then they ask you to show how much do you owe on it. So let's say right now the market is high 
And it doesn't take much for a house to be worth where I live over a million. And, uh, and it looks like you have a lot of equity in it. But in fact, you may not be able to pay the seventy dollars or $81,000 a year, which is what Wake Forest and Brown University charge. So the family, dual income family, may come up with a pretty substantial expected contribution, which is high, which the college expects them to pay, and it doesn't mean that the family can pay it. So typically, the FAFSA is more income-driven. The FAFSA is connected to the IRS. So when a student files FAFSA and enters the parent's social security number, the FAFSA connects with IRS. And as long as the parents filed a 1040, all that information from the prior prior year populates the FAFSA. So the student doesn't really have to do anything other than to click on, on that data retrieval tool, which now is called something like tax report or something like that. And so then the private college that uses the CSS profile has all of that information from FAFSA, all of that financial information. Plus, they're going to ask about do you have, do you own a boat or a motorcycle or do you have valuables? Do you have collections that are valuable? Uh, do yacht. you have, you know? <laughs> I think that's what you meant by invasive, correct? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was working for Sally Mae Lender, I was privy to the conversations that went on online. And the funniest conversation, which I shall never forget, was that a family owned a cow in Texas. And one financial aid administrator was saying, that is not an asset. You cannot count it as an asset that could produce money to pay for college. Well, the other one was saying, it is an asset because a family with a cow is better off than a family without a cow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, then, and then somebody else was saying, well, what is a cow's worth? Is it worth two or three? How could it be sold for maybe five thousand dollars? And someone else would pipe up and say, "No, it costs them like nine hundred dollars a year to feed it, not counting the vet bills." So the whole conversation was going back and forth, trying to decide whether the cow was an asset, and five point six four percent should be put into the formula of available funding for college, or whether it was a liability and should be excluded from the formula. That and then is. you have the other, you know, the other side of that conversation where somebody says, "Well, how can my private jet be considered an asset?" You know, and right. The, the other side, absolutely. So, as so that was such a great explanation, I never heard it explained that way before in terms of like measuring the poor and the rich. But that's definitely a great way, and I'm going to explain that to my students in the future. But for parents that, because obviously we will hear from the families we work with about how they can or cannot afford college very soon. But what advice, or you know, should would you give for parents that are preparing to apply for financial aid for the first time this upcoming fall so that they will be better prepared for next spring? Yes, I'm working with sophomores and juniors in high school. And the, I tell the parents, 
after we have a conversation and the student says, I have a dream college, okay, what is it? I tell the parents to use the net price calculator on each college's website, which is mandated by the federal government and has to be updated every year. Now, not all of them are, not all of them are precise, but they're still giving parents a ballpark idea for what the, their cost would be. So I tell the parents of my juniors and sophomores, so let's say they're interested in Wake Forest and, and, and Walford or Furman in South Carolina. I tell them to go on those websites. By the way, Duke University has probably the best net price calculator. It's very detailed. And so I tell the parents to go in, take their last year, prior, prior year's taxes, but if they're juniors, that will be the year that will be considered. In other words, when their child starts college in, 2020, in the fall of 2024, they will be looking at the income taxes, the income tax returns from 2022 which they have just filed or are filing. So use that, that data to enter into the net price calculator and then see, you know, even exaggerate a little bit what their income might be. Now, some families have a fluctuating income that's harder, but if you have a fixed job, you can probably estimate what you, what you earned, especially for 2022, which will be the base year for juniors. And, and then take a look at it. So for instance, I, this family that just texted me, they just visited Wake Forest. Well, both mom and dad work. The UFC is $70,000 a year. And they're not living high off the hog, but they, their EFC is high. And they've decided that over four years, that will be a quarter of a million dollars to send their child to such a school. So they're also looking at their own in-state schools or smaller liberal arts colleges that do award merit aid. So for instance, Davidson does not award merit aid. They only fill demonstrated financial need. Well, this family is not well off, but they don't demonstrate a huge financial need. And their child luckily is very, very good. I mean, he's probably a top 15% in the class, plus he's a boy, you know, that there are fewer males in the applicant pools of colleges. So they're also looking at UNC Chapel Hill, UNC State. They're also going to look at small, small private schools where they can get merit scholarships. I'm I have students now, especially I have that conversation. What's your, especially with sophomores, what's your, what's your dream school? And so college age, college aid pro has a free website where you can go and basically plug in your school and find out basically how much you can look for paying for a long period of four years. And it's amazing how many parents get, you know, a, a readjustment to reality, how much college is going to cost. And it changes the conversation of which colleges we talk about for the next two years. So yeah, there, I, I like your idea of let's talk about your dream school and the reality that follows that. Yes. Yeah. I like that. I like I, parents have to be 
prepared. I mean, you wouldn't buy a house without mm. getting pre-qualified for a mortgage, nor would you mm. walk onto a, mm-hmm. a car lot. I know my husband would love to buy one of those new electric vehicles that cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. But, <laughs> oh, that's, it's nice to dream, but it isn't going to happen because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to take a second job to, to, to afford that kind of vehicle. And now, since COVID, we don't drive very much. I mean, I have to say, a lot of it is on Zoom and on podcasts, just like we're doing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting you say, Claire, I never thought of that. You have to get pre-approved for a large home loan. Mm-hmm. But you can get a huge college aid loan and not have to be pre-approved. It's basically... You, well, there, there's some there's some insight and they ask you some questions, but it sure seems like you can you can get into debt trouble much easier with college. Well, the plus loan does have a few requirements like a parent must not owe federal taxes. So they must not be in arrear yeah. of federal taxes. They must not have declared bankruptcy in the last 10 years. They must, you know, so there are a couple of things like that that they check and the plus loan then is issued to one parent one signatory and the interest rate this year 2023-24 is 7.9 percent with four percent origination fee which means that the Sally May of the world SoFi Wells Fargo are competing with a lower initial rate and they may, you know, go down to about six with maybe 1% origination fee, but they may require multiple signatories. So, for instance, a colleague of ours has a brother who unfortunately passed away, and he had signed up with MIFA, which is Massachusetts Finance Associated, and that was not a federal loan. And so now they're going after the wife for payment of that loan. Had this dad selected a plus loan, it would have been all forgiven. So the 4% origination fee is like a guarantee for the federal government, but it's also a life insurance policy. And then when it comes to paying back the government, it's a little, a little more lenient. For example, Students can borrow from the direct Stafford loan, the William D. Ford subsidized and unsubsidized loan. And as you know, automatically when students file FAFSA, they're automatically approved for the undergraduate loan of $5,500 in first year, $6,500 in second year, and $7,500 in third and fourth year. You'll remember that from our class, right, Anna? Mm Mm-hmm. The interest rate on that is 5.49 this year with about 1% origination fee. It used to be 2.34% last year. So that's how, how, how much it's gone up. But the, there is a student typically has no credit. And if they do, it's probably negative. But most 17, 18-year-olds are a blank slate. The government is lending them money. They have, you know, no credit, no experience, no credit is better than having bad credit, right? So the students graduate with about $30,000 worth of loans. 
and there is no credit check for them, but they can establish credit rating by paying it back. And I tell my students to pay the interest on their loans, the sub unsubsidized portion every year. It could be like $250 or so, but that way that loan doesn't capitalize on top of the amount borrowed because if you count on $250 interest a year for four years, well, that's $1,000. Plus, even if they're placed on the 10-year standard repayment plan, it could be quite high. And it could be, it's not for sure that the students graduate and find a job that allows them to pay the interest and principal. So I would say that, that college is synonymous with taking out loans because you, you have 17, 18-year-olds taking out $5,500, which they may make up if they work hard during the summer and save. But at the same time, it's an obligation. And they get it automatically when they file the FAFSA. And then studies, longitudinal studies, are showing that if the students don't take out their portion of loans, then parents end up borrowing more in year three and four. Hmm. So if, you, if your child can borrow for about five and a half percent, it may teach them or her may teach them how to budget, may teach them finance. But again, we don't have those good financial courses in high school. Like right from ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, they need to know. They may be taking AP calculus, AB calculus, and know nothing about what happens in reality with compounding interest. Yeah, my, my wife is a CFP, and she says the one thing that students should graduate high school with is a knowledge of what compound interest really means, good and bad. So you're, I, I think she's applauding your comment. <laughs> I know in New Jersey, I don't know if it is the case in other states, but it's a requirement for graduation to have That's personal nice. finance as a course in high school. So at least I know in our state, the kids do learn about compound interest, amongst other things. Before it's a graduate. requirement in New Jersey? That's awesome. Yeah, to graduate. You cannot That's graduate fantastic. with the degree. They have some core requirements in New Jersey and personal finance is one of them. I don't I know if it. the kids pay attention. I hope they do because compound <laughs> interest can be pretty scary. But no, the other thing I was going to say is I know random, but like for this upcoming season for 2023 FAFSA, I'm sure a few of you guys also work with kids that parents of multiples, right? So I know back when I was learning about financial aid, we used to get a quote unquote discount or parents used to get a discount if they had more than one kid in college. Right. Like some people have triplets or twins. That's changing, right? Yes. Claire, yeah, can you speak changing. more about that? Yeah, it is. Well, it was it was beneficial for families that had twins or triplets or children that were born close together because then that expected family contribution was divided. So you have two kids in college at the same time. Say your EFC was, you know, sixty thousand. Now you would be expected to pay thirty thousand per child. Or you had three kids in college and your expected contribution was thirty thousand. They would split that in three more or less and now your expected contribution per child would be 10,000 well that's no more so 
and that that's going bye-bye. We don't know what the private colleges will do, whether they'll follow the FAFSA ruling, but the difference is if you had Joey and Lucy overlapping for three years, then the family would be paying for five years of college. But if Joey and Lucy were not overlapping, then the family would be paying for eight years of college, which is a good lot, a lot more than if UEFC is divided during those three years when they overlap. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a loophole, a good one for people who had triplets and people who had their kids close together, but not for those who had spaced their children out. And it seemed unfair to the other people. Although, listen, any way that you could cut college costs, I'd go for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just can't imagine planning triplets, though, just to avoid a college cost. <laughs> and I, knew I, a, I knew a family here in Seattle that they were a blended family and they brought kids from both sides. And when they got married and they had six kids in college at the same time. Oh, my um, gosh. That, I know. <laughs> <It was> a, <laughs> Not a not a not a pleasant thought. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, I, the formula is due to change next year because the um, as you know, you know how the changes to FAFSA came about, right? The there was a consolidation and appropriation act of twenty twenty one where. A retiring senator from West Virginia, Lamar Alexander, wanted to reduce the number of questions on the FAFSA to fewer questions. There were like 180 questions. He wanted to reduce them to 36. The Department of Education is having a lot of trouble setting that up. There may be 40. They're, they're not sure that they can even launch that this fall in 2023. The new FAFSA, they're, they're hiring outside contractors because they have a central processor that processes all of the FAFSA and it's, and it's a little bit antiquated. So they do need a new process, which will incorporate all of Senator Alexander's changes, but they are struggling to implement them. So they so the EFC, the expected contribution, will no longer be divided by the number of children in college, which is going to disadvantage a lot of families. And I think, though, that that, depending on the situation, the Department of Education has given financial aid administrators open book all the authority they need to make professional judgment. So that could be something that could be really debated and uh, argued about with financial aid administrators at the colleges that accept the children. Basically sitting down and saying, hey, look, you know, here I am, I have six children. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because so, otherwise what ends up happening is the first child, the parents blow their budget, right? Because they haven't planned, he'll go, they'll go to the, most expensive private school that, that the child can get into. Second child will be an in-state school and third child, they can go to the local community college. <laughs> you know, it's not fair to the it's last true. child. And so it's all about planning, planning for, for college and, and, and also looking at one's finances. So, Claire, you said that the FAFSA, I mean, it has government oversight and 
not only which questions are asked, but, you know, when they're going to be asked. And we've got, you know, the profile, CSS profile is there. They're not, you know, there isn't a government oversight de determining what they're going to ask, how they ask it, and who they ask it of. So right now we see the changes to FAFSA coming in 2023. But do we know when any changes, if any changes, happen to the CSS profile questions and, and their formula? Yeah, that's, you know, that's just the crux of the matter because, like I said, colleges will look at FAFSA and give out federal aid and any state aid that's available. But the CSS profile, you're talking about money that comes out of the college's own coffers. So they are entitled to ask whatever question is important to them. So if it's a religious college, they might say, what is your religion? They may be able to type, you know, tap into a diocese or maybe, maybe they get money from, I don't know, the Episcopal church. If, but they are entitled to ask those questions which a secular school would never. So the, the private college is entitled to ask the family anything and everything, you know, including the color of your car, because they want to make sure that families are contributing to the best of their ability. And they're not just letting the college get a, you know, sending their kids to, co to college at the college's expense, unless, of course, unless the student is so valued by the college. See, I think the very poor families, the low-income families, ought to knock on the door of colleges that fill a lot of demonstrated need. So I just talked with a young girl who's a friend of a student of mine, and she's a Davidson. Now, she's Pell eligible. She got Davidson loans. She worked part-time. She's putting herself through. That's perfect. Send the low-income students to Duke, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of those really few schools, maybe 18 to 20 schools that fill 100% of need. Have them try for the moon. But they'll still, and there'll still be very wealthy families who will pay the sticker price to send their child to Harvard, Yale, Princeton anyway. It's not like those those halls are empty of wealthy students. They're not. You know, Vanderbilt has a, you know, I don't know, something like 35% trust fund kids and trust fund babies. So it's not like these colleges are not going to have the rich because the rich is still going to go and pay for prestige, visibility, and elite, you know, the, the elite name. It's the and family. Yeah, pay full price will be fine for them. They can do, and I don't worry about them because they usually have, you know, five twenty nine plans, inheritances, uncles, aunts, grandparents are willing to chip in. It's really the families, middle of the road and low income, even families who's who have never gone to college, parents have never gone to college, their kids gets into NYU, they think the sky opened, and they're going to take out all those loans because they think they can't go wrong. Those are the people you have to really talk about ROI and caution and, you know, and, and just 
tell them it's not what you think it is. And those are the people who sometimes get themselves into a, a lot of trouble. Very good. You you mentioned something that I think we all are big fans of, and we all love it when a family comes to us and they say, yeah, we've, we've got a 529 fully funded in place. So what is a 529 and why is it such a group? Um, I, I look at students and I say, please give your mom and dad a big hug, tell them you love them and tell them you love their foresight in providing you with one of the best gifts they ever could have. So can you explain kind of what the 529 is and how it comes into play in all of the FAFSA and how we pay for college? Right. The 529 is a clause in the federal register that says that you can put money into this 529 account and will it will accrue interest. So you can put money pre-tax into it and it'll accrue in interest or whatever. And when you disburse, if you disburse it into a legitimate higher education expense or even private school now, you will not be taxed on it. And furthermore, more things have changed about the 529, whereas if it was owned by grandparents, when it was disbursed to the college, it was considered a student asset. And so it was assessed at 20 to 25%, which would go into the EFC ability to pay for the next year. Well, now that has changed completely. So regardless of who owns that 529, whether it's a grandparent, an aunt, or even a student, now, when that 529 is disbursed, it's no longer a student asset, but it's going to be assessed at the parental rate and the asset rate for parents is 5.64%. So it's very low straight, a very low portion of it will be considered available funding for college. So that means that you know, the pass through of inheritances will also be considered at the parental rate which will make it easier for people to retain more of their family wealth. And you said yes. that's parents, grandparents, how far of an extended family can it be a family friend who says, yes. I have this 529 and I want to help, you know, subsidize this part of my neighbor's kids' education. Can they do that? Yes, they can. You know, you raised a really important point because some Say there is a family that saved a boatload of money until 529 and then their kid doesn't go to college mm -hmm. or their kid goes to, say, two years of community college, then in-state and doesn't exhaust all the amount. Right. So now they're stuck with this 529 plan. What's there to say that you couldn't barter with another family that needs it? That's taking I've it never away. heard of that. Maybe I've never maybe either. A website, a website, 529 barter. Yeah. <laughs> so what 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 would be the the benefit what's the biggest benefit for a grandparent or how can they make it the biggest benefit in dispersing a 529 say they've got multiple grandchildren and they want to make the most of their you know their savings for for their kids what is the best way that do they give it directly to the school? Do they give it to the kid? Do they give it to the parents? What's the best way that, that they can maximize their savings? Right. Well, the, it used to be that, that the grandparent would pass the 529 to the parent and would change the 
the owner of the account so that it wouldn't be taxed, it wouldn't be assessed at the student rate. There used to be all this going around, mm -hmm. but now the grandparents can disperse directly to the college and it's only going to be assessed at the parental 5.64% rate. So the next year, because otherwise grandparents would wait until the student was in the junior year and then the, they wouldn't file the FAFSA for senior year. So it was a wash. It, was, it wasn't recorded. Mm. But now the, the amount is consistently going to be, and if, I guess if they want to even avoid that 5.64% assessment, they still can wait until junior year to pay everything off. It's, and it's did a, you say that's for private schools and state schools? Yes, yeah. So, so the, it was only for higher education. And now you can use a 529 plan to pay for boarding school. And I believe, don't get me, I'm pretty sure also for private school. So you, you okay. really need to read the federal register. But I'm pretty sure that now it's been expanded, not just to college, but also boarding school. Because I know some of the boarding school had, you know, the heads of boarding schools were saying that. So that opens it up. And especially think of it if a student suffers from mental health issues mm -hmm. and a grandparent has money in a 529 plan that could pay for therapeutic boarding school or a wilderness program, that could be a lot more beneficial for, for a student who's at risk than waiting for college where the student might never even go to college if he doesn't get treatment. And as we know, post-COVID, there is a lot of anxiety and depression amongst our teenagers. So we have to be very careful when we, when we talk with them, even about college costs, because they could become, hey, they could break up and cry. You know, they could break down and, and get so anxious about it. So I typically have the conversation with the parents. Then, once I get to know the student, if the student is very realistic, level-headed, maybe we could have that conversation about the, the responsibility to contribute to your own education. When you, when you file FAFSA, you are signing a promissory note. Regardless, your parents might say, we'll pay for it. But if they don't, you have to pay those loans back. So I have that conversation. But first of all, as far as the funding is concerned, I have that conversation with parents because I think juniors, sophomores, but especially juniors in high school are under such a lot of pressure. It's the hardest year of high school. They have a lot going on. They're trying. Nobody's cutting them a, great, a break when they're academically. It's the most demanding year of high school. So I, I don't want to burden them with thinking about college and costs, because they may already be anxious about that. So I try to, to tell them how exciting it's going to be, which it is. If <laughs> yeah. we find the right fit, they're going to they're going to blossom. They're going to do great. So when do you have that conversation, for example, about cost? And I honestly think a dream college should be an affordable college as well. I think that goes into the definition of a dream college. But when do you kind of approach those conversations and how do you approach those conversations? Very early on. I find out very early on whether cost is an issue or whether we whether whether the cost of college will determine the type of college the student attends. 
And some parents will just brush it off. And if I think that they maybe didn't want to talk about it that time, I might revisit very tactfully. I might give them a questionnaire. <laughs> you know, how is, you know, how important is it, is it for you to, to have an affordable college? And, you know, I pray and hope to have nothing but parents who can afford everything. But the truth is that I don't. Because the majority of people cannot just write a check for $70,000 every year, or even if they go in-state, it's still $30,000, $35,000 with room and board. And, and you pay before you send your child to college. So it's not, like, it's not like you can leave it for the last minute. So Claire, that's the conversation that we have with, our parent, with, our, with the parents and family and students that we work with. And one of the things, and we have a lot of parents who are listening to this, and they may have a student who's a junior, or they may have younger uh, children as well. When when do you have, would you, would you suggest that parents have this conversation with their kids about, you know, here's what we can afford for college. Here's what college costs. There's a gap. And this is kind of what you're responsible for. What kind of age? I mean, I I encourage parents to have this, you know, even in ninth grade. But like you say, as a psychologist and as an educator, I know how much stress we've got our kids under. Do we want to throw that additional bomb into our relationship and our conversations? It's a very adult subject matter. And should we talk about Here's the reality. I know you're thinking about Harvard. Harvard costs $330,000 after for four years. Here's how much we can afford. When do you have that conversation? When is it appropriate? Yeah, again, it depends on whether the, the student is realistic. And I use my Myers-Briggs type indicator. You know, if they're an ISTJ, if they're a sensing thinker, Judgment preference, I know they're realistic. I can have that conversation. But if they're very sensitive, I may not even bother with it. It's just that I may, but I do tell them that the cost depends on two things. It depends on the student's academic performance. So I tell them, Joey, it depends on your academic performance. Do the best work you're capable of doing. And two, it depends on your families, your parents' financial positioning vis-a-vis the college's financial aid policies. So I tell them you have not, there's nothing you can do about the, the college financial aid policies and your parents' financial situation, but you can do the best work that you're capable of and maybe even take a part-time job. But so the two have to merge and coexist amicably the student's academic performance, and the parents. Sometimes the parents are just knocking on the wrong door for their financial position, where they may be, you know, a lot of middle-class families are maybe underserved at certain colleges that don't meet demonstrated need. So they may be looking, they may need to be looking for a little bit of discounting, which would be the scholarship the student gets at the beginning when they get accepted in the acceptance letter, there's usually an offer of scholarship that's renewable every four year, every year for four years. So they get these acceptance letters with $100,000. 
over four years is $25,000 <laughs> each year off of 70,000. So it's still, you know, it's still $45,000 a year that the parents have to pay. But so that's the student's portion. So the student can control that. And once the student goes to college, the student can control book costs. They can buy them online, used. They can avoid having, you know, a latte, Starbucks latte, latte every day. But the other part of the equation is understanding the family finances and whether they would be better off at a FAFSA-only school or a profile school that meets, say, 90% of demonstrated need or 80% of demonstrated need. And that really is a conversation that I can have with the parents, you know, given your expected family contribution and the fact that this college you're looking at doesn't have any aid to give out. The only aid you can expect is from the scholarship. Would you be able to then pay X, Y, and Z and go on their net price calculator and find out what that would be? And, you know, net price calculators are getting better and better. Yes. For sure. I always tell my students, like, I won't make the list until I know where your parents stand on finances. Where, where they sit. Well, one of the, I don't know, I'm sure you guys have the same. It's it's the worst conversation, I think, of what we do. And that's when you have a student who has done everything you've asked them and then some. They have got straight A's. They've taken the hardest classes. They've made good choices with their time. They've done extracurriculars. They've worked in, they may have had a job on top of it and they've done everything. And it comes down and they get in, accepted to X, Y, and Z school. And then because their parents are in that middle spot where they're not going to get any financial aid, you're not going to get the money that would allow you to make a reasonable consideration of that school and so they basically feel like well wait a second i have worked and done everything you've possibly asked me to do and now you're telling me i can't go to that school and that it is by far i don't know how we've actually allowed ourselves to get colleges that are so out of price point and yet we have students who've done everything they should to be able to get into them and that that middle section is just it's it's a tough place to be yeah, and that, I think, is the negotiating zone right there, that middle section when there is a huge gap. I encourage my parents to appeal, to do their budget and write down all of their expenses. I tell them to keep accurate records of all their monthly expenses. And and then, yeah, their EFC, their student aid index, now it's called student aid index, whatever, that amount that they're expected to pay, if it's too high and there is a big gap between what they're expected to pay and what the college wants them to pay, then I would I would have that conversation with the financial aid administrator and really let them know that, you know, my child has done everything. It's just that this would put our family in financial jeopardy. Is there anything you can do? And usually, if usually the family has maxed out of federal aid, so they're looking for institutional aid. And you know, outside scholarships really don't help that much. They may help in first year, like five hundred dollars from the Rotary or whatever, but they don't really lower 
the tuition and direct costs that much. And they're one time only. So if you can find, sometimes you can scour the catalog for scholarships that the college has that could be renewed every, every year. There's gotta be something that the financial aid administrator can do for a family that's in that situation where they're gapped, a big, big gap. I think that, and then the other thing is, it doesn't happen often, but if the student has been accepted to a higher ranked school where they would pay less, they could say, well, look, this school is giving me more money. So I used to work at Bryant University, which is a business specialty school. If Clark University or Quinnipiac or Bentley or Babson gave them more money and they still wanted to come to Bryant, then we would certainly look at it. That's one thing I've, I've had in the last two years, there's been more of a, the response has been from schools, uh, we've given our best offer. And even though parents, you know, I mean, we, we go through and we identify the areas that we think are most important that the school knows about for this is the reason why it's an undue burden on our particular family's situation. And a number of schools have written back, we've given our best offer. Thank you. Well, then nothing ventured, nothing tried, but the family family can, can, and that's why it's, it's good to have, like, like Anna said, a financially safe college, because that type of student who's taken advantage of every opportunity while he was in high school will not squander opportunities in college, no matter where he goes. It's true. So I was thinking we could end with some good, bad, and the ugly tales with financial aid. So I figured we'd all each give one and it could be fall into any of those categories. But Mark, do you want to start and then you can go, Claire? Should we go good first or or not? Whatever you have. Whatever you have. I want to I want to end on a on a good one. So I'm I'm I'll, I'll lead with one that is a cautionary tale. And this one is having the conversation for three years, working with the student and the family. If you are considering early decision, it is a binding contract and can be financially devastating if it doesn't go your way. Know that going in, eyes wide open. Student says, absolutely, we understand that. We get to the application process, applies, gets into Brown. I said, you know, early decision is a big deal. We talked about this. They may not know I really want to apply early decision. I don't think you're going to get any money. I know what your family's numbers. Oh, no, we'll get money. Okay. (laughs) They apply. They get almost nothing. And so they're on, they're on the hook for, you know, $300,000 for four years of More education. And they go like, you know, we can't afford that. And I said, here's the deal. And through multiple conversations with the college and yeah, she graduated last year with a big debt. So please understand it's a binding contract and it can be not to your advantage. However, on the good side, last year and exactly like we talked about leveraging one school against another two top two top schools top choices one gave twenty thousand dollars more in aid than the other basically a one page letter that outlined and gave that gave the colleges 
you know, admission and their financial aid offer, gave it to the other school, said, this is what I'm being offered. You are still my top choice. And they met it fully. And that's like you say, spend that hour writing that letter, leverage, and it can work to your way benefit as well. And especially with private schools, they have that that ability to reconsider, especially if you are one of those students, like you said, that's done everything, done all we could possibly ask. And the colleges know they're probably going to be a great student at their school. Yes, yes, yes. And and piggybacking on your early decision, it's why I love early action, non-binding early action. Wherever possible, I tell my students to go early action early. So I tell parents to file that FAFSA. It becomes available October 1st by October 15th or October 30th. The first week, the FAFSA computer is jammed. But I tell them to file their FAFSA. And then I tell students to apply if they're ready, because some students do need an extra semester or two to show their grades because the transcript isn't may not be ready for the schools that they want. But if they are, then I encourage them to apply by November, November 1st, November 15th. Those early action deadlines are becoming even earlier. Can yes. you believe the University of South Carolina's early action line is October 15th? It is it is ridiculous because they it's haven't even started a, senior it's a, year. It's a rolling, it's a rolling application at that point. <laughs> it's almost yeah, all I mean, it's year. Just, but I do encourage them to apply early action so that they can hear around Christmas, New Year. They know if a school accepted them, it's whew, they feel less stressed out. It's like a cloud lifts from on top of them when they know that they've been accepted somewhere. They can relax, finish senior year. And the offer is has to be kept open until my, mm-hmm. May 1st. But at the same time, they have a place to go. So I, I, I'm all in favor of early action. And have you noticed that certain colleges like Georgetown has restrictive early action? So they allow a student to apply to Georgetown early action, but they don't want the student to apply early action to other colleges. What's up with that? So that's um, a lot of a cat. So I went to Georgetown. <laughs> I know it's definitely in the IEC community. It's like, oh, Georgetown, the problem child, whether it's testing or anything else. I completely hear you on that. It's a few of the Catholic schools actually do that. It's just that they want you to actually be able to choose them should they accept you. It's yeah. very good to know from a Georgetown alumna. <laughs> Stanford and, and Harvard are also two of the restricted well, they're single choice. Well, and that's and that, so that that's I consider them different. Labor. Yes, that I consider yeah. them a little different. The single, there's four of them, I think, right? Single choice, early action. I'm not going to name them, but yeah, prob- problem children <laughs> and college admissions. But you go ahead, Claire. What are your like no. good or bad financial um, aid stories? Well, financial aid stories. Let's see. Oh, well, you have with FAFSA and profile, you have the logistics of filing. Nobody charges for filing the FAFSA. In fact, it's quite easy to get aid straight from the Department of Education. And it's a it's an 800 number. If you go on studentaid.gov and you type in FAFSA help, 
you get an 800 number. There is during filing season in the fall, it's a 24 hour line that's open. Should you get confused about your FSA ID or lose your login or password, they're great. So there is no need for anybody to charge or pay for help with filing FAFSA. It is out there at the Department of Education. So profile, well, you know, they say you file FAFSA with a glass of wine and you file <laughs> profile with a full bottle of wine because it is, it is a lot more complicated, but I'll leave you with that. I love that. That is such helpful advice. I have one. It's not a matching one. So I have a good one where it's the opposite of yours, Mark. So I had parents who were like, you know, we can definitely afford college, whatever college costs, we can afford it. But like you said, Claire, in the beginning, there are some students that are very practical and reasonable and looking at how much they had spent for the first child at a private school and they'd done ED. The second child said, no, we are applying for FAFSA this time. I'm going to apply for financial aid and I am not doing early decision anywhere. And they ended up accepting an excellent offer from a school that gave merit aid and they're very happy there right now. But they, the merit scholarship basically have their tuition. Right. So it made their family, even though their parents were like, you know, the name is not quite as pretty as like their sisters maybe, but obviously very proud and happy of this student for being the rational one in the family to say, <laughs> Hey, this is how much we can afford. And I'm going to be practical about this. And then one more from a student who really had great need, let's say really great need where the family mom was making like a little bit above minimum wage. So you can imagine they're pretty much at poverty line, but this really awesome private school not only made it cheaper than our in-state public institution to attend, and it was a far stretch school for them. And they work very hard at this school as a result of that, but they're doing well. But then it was really interesting because you know, it's the Wild West now in college admissions. And so they asked me, Anna, like, what would happen if I asked for more aid? I said, well, you won't know unless you try. I said, would it, you know, you know, it's they've offered a pretty good offer, you know, to help make it possible for mom to afford it. But if you think, you know, if mom would really need that help, you can make the case, you know, and see. And sure enough, that school gave them and it's a private institution gave them another three to five grand. And for that student, that means a lot, especially for a mother who was close to the poverty line. So they paid very little to attend college. So I do think like, you know, like you said, Claire, it does pay sometimes to do the appeal and to try because you never know who's also, who's sitting on the other end, right? Yep. And, yep. and I, you, you bring up a scenario. I think we, we might, you know, start if, if colleges actually paid a student to come to their university and then you give them 1% of your earnings for the next 10 years. So that would make them have to educate you. Well, you do. Isn't well. Purdue doing that? <laughs> I think there Purdue are, is testing it. There are right? movements in that direction. Yeah. Yes. I've heard some schools are, are testing that actually, but yes, my brother is one of the few people that got paid to go to college. I believe right. with no strings attached. He, he does, make some minor contribution to 
to donations, but that's about it. But no, this was so helpful, Claire. Any closing thoughts for our audience as they prepare for the next season? Well, I would say check the net price calculators, whether your child is, you can check that whether your child is in the ninth grade, 10th grade, certainly by 11th grade. So you have an idea of where you stand relative to your finances. So check check your own in-state institutions, net price calculator, then take a private, couple of private colleges and see what you qualify for. And that will give you an idea for whether, for what's affordable for you. So you won't be surprised and you will apply to colleges that are affordable and you won't omit colleges that could have been affordable and you didn't apply because you didn't know that they filled hundred percent of need. That's so awesome. try the net price calculator. And where can people learn more about you or get in touch with you? Yeah, I am at educationalavenues.com. So my practice is the first three letters of educational avenues is eduave.com. That's my website and my email, claireadeguav.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Claire, and your expertise. You guys had such, well, we're all in the same business and, and you have very, very good questions. And we hope to have helped some parents out there. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. I'm going to tell all my parents one bottle of wine for the profile. I like that. We're not encouraging any alcoholics here, but no. by the way. <laughs> Thanks for listening to College Admissions with Mark and Anna, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each time we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.collegeadmissionspodcast.com.